to the Old Roads Podcast, a podcast that seeks to bring the wisdom of the past to the challenges of the present. I am your host, Aaron O'Kelly. I'm a pastor and a theological educator. I'm offering a bonus episode today as a response to Gavin Ortland's recent argument on his podcast, Truth Unites, about the nature of Noah's flood. Gavin recently did an episode of Truth Unites, which, by the way, I'm a subscriber to, and I've found very helpful in many ways. Uh, Gavin is a very thoughtful brother and one who knows church history well, and I think he's made some very strong arguments for Protestant theology over against Roman Catholicism. I appreciate also many of the things that he said about spiritual gifts, about baptism, and so I do want to recommend his podcast in general. Recently, he did a podcast on the flood of Noah's day and made an argument about the extent of the flood in which he said that it's it's very plausible to interpret the flood of Noah's day as a local event that occurred in a region of the Middle East of that time period and was not, in fact, global in its scope. Now, Gavin didn't actually say for sure that he held that view definitively, but what he argued was it, it seemed to be the more plausible reading of the text. And uh, certainly he argues, and I agree with him on this point, he argues that this is not a test of orthodoxy. You can be a true and faithful believer, uh, even if you hold to a local flood view, and I, I would agree with that statement. However, I wanted to respond to the arguments that Gavin offered in which he put forth a view of a local flood as having more plausibility than a global flood. And the reason I wanted to respond to that is because I believe the text of Scripture points us in that direction for good theological reasons that the rest of the Bible makes clear. And that even though this issue is not one that rises to the level of heresy versus orthodoxy, nevertheless, when there is error, it needs to be refuted. And so I wanted to offer uh, some observations on the biblical text for why I believe the flood that is pictured in Genesis 6 through 9 is universal, global in scope as an act of universal judgment and decreation and then recreation of the world. So Gavin begins by putting his argument into context, and he played a clip from Bill Maher in which Maher was ridiculing virtually every aspect of the story of Noah. And so Gavin was indicating that his motivation is to help people who struggle with certain aspects of the Christian faith. And so his, his argument is that if we burden people with beliefs about the Bible or about theology that are too difficult or too implausible to them, we might actually hinder their faith. And to which I want to say, Bill Maher really isn't a good example of that. Bill Maher is a scoffer. He's one who thinks belief in God itself is ridiculous. And so there's no amount of accommodation of Christian teaching that we could ever employ that would persuade Bill Maher. This is one of those situations where I think Jesus gave us instructions not to cast our pearls before swine. And so let's not go out of our way to try to win over those who simply scoff at the Christian faith. Is there someone out there who could check off all the other boxes of Christian belief? Say they believe in creation out of nothing. They believe in the sovereign triune God. They believe in all the miracles recorded in the Old Testament. They believe in the incarnation, the miracles of Jesus, his death on the cross, his miraculous resurrection from the dead. They believe all those things. But when it comes to the flood they say, oh, I've got to draw a line there. I really cannot get over that particular hurdle to my faith. I don't know if that person really exists. It's hard for me to believe that this issue would be the one stumbling block 
to someone who would be willing to embrace the generally supernatural worldview that you see in the Bible. So it doesn't really land with me. I trust the honesty of Gavin's motivation, but it doesn't seem to land with me that this is really an apologetic issue that is going to affect people at that level. We can't convert the Bill Mars of the world. Of course, God can do whatever he wants. God could convert Bill Maher if he wants to, but those who are scoffers at the faith in general are not those that we're going to reach with these arguments. And then, as I said, I don't know that the person actually exists who can check off all the other boxes of Christian Orthodox belief but would stumble at this one. Gavin does make an argument later on in the podcast where he says that the flood is a historical event. We actually have various forms of it preserved in various writings of various cultures from the ancient world that seems to reflect cultural memory of an event that actually happened. And on that point, I agree wholeheartedly and fully affirm what Gavin was arguing for there. I'd like to focus, though, my response to Gavin on the two arguments that he made for the plausibility of a local flood reading as against a universal flood in Genesis 6 through 8. And so his first argument is that the same language that is used several times in Genesis 6 through 8 can be used for local reference. So, for example, when the text speaks of the earth in your English Bible, the word that is translated earth from the Hebrew could often be translated the land. And so it could be a reference to a local reality of a particular land. And even a phrase like all the land, or even, uh, as Gavin points out, under the whole heaven from Deuteronomy 2.25, there are several references to these realities of, of the Hebrew word that is translated land or earth, all the land under the whole heaven as being local reference. And so he's saying it's not implausible that we might read the same kinds of statements, phrases, words in the flood account to mean a local referent as well. And he, he argues we should not read the Bible with modern presuppositions of a round earth or globe, but rather read it in light of the way that its original readers would have read it. They would have understood the earth more what we might call phenomenologically as it appeared to them. And the Bible being written in ordinary human language would have reflected their perception. Now, on those points, I do want to acknowledge, yes, those phrases can be used as local reference. And yes, we should read the Bible speaking in the ordinary language of those to whom it came. But when it comes to defining how you understand a particular word or phrase that is capable of being used in different ways in the Bible, context must be the determining factor. So even if this phrase, all the land, for example, can be used as a local referent, does the context of Noah's flood indicate that it is being used that way in Genesis 6 through 8? And here I would argue that the flood account in these chapters of the Bible has numerous echoes of the creation account. If you look at Genesis 6 through 8, and really we should include chapter 9 as well, the aftermath of the flood. Genesis 6 through 9, you have numerous echoes, numerous parallels to the original creation account, which is in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what you see among these parallels is a message that what God did in the beginning with creation... He has now done in a new form with the flood as a judgment, a wiping out of the old creation and the bringing forth of a new creation. And since the original creation is a global universal reality, I would argue that so is the account of the flood and the new creation that emerged from it. So let me just walk you through some of the parallels between the creation account and the flood account. Notice how often Moses, the author of Genesis, draws our attention to these parallels. 
In the original creation account, we read in Genesis 1, 11, and 12, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. If you go down to verse 21 of the same chapter, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verses 24 and 25, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You, you hear that phrase being repeated over and over again, according to its kind or according to their kinds. You see the same in the flood account in Genesis 6, 19 and 20. We read that the Lord says to Noah, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive the echoes here are very prominent in verse 14 of chapter 7 they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature the language uh, is very coordinated, you might say, between the creation account and the flood account. You have something similar going on with the phrase male and female, which is mentioned in Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them. The same phrase appears in uh, Genesis 6.19, which tells us uh, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. The same occurs in Genesis chapter 7 verse 9. Of course, you have reference to seven days in the original creation account, the seventh day being the day that God rested in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. You have multiple references to seven days in the flood account in Genesis 7, verse 4, also in Genesis 8, verse 10, and verse 12. Creation begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and it's all water. You notice that uh, the original creation account tells us the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have this watery, unformed earth in the very beginning. And that's what you have in the flood account as well. In chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, we read, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. You have the waters covering the land again in an, an act of undoing creation. So in the beginning, the creation was water. And the Lord separated out water from land and brought order to the water and to the land by creating their distinct spheres. In the flood, God undid his creation and brought the waters back over the land. And that seems to be what's being communicated there in chapter 7, 17 to 20. 
You have a universal language used in verses 21 to 23, also of chapter 7. It says, And all flesh that died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. It's hard to imagine how the author of Genesis could have communicated any more strongly that this was a universal event. Speaking of the universal extent of death that occurred as a result of the flood. In addition to that, God tells the animals in Genesis 1.22 at the original creation, he said this to the fish, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. His divine blessing is over the creatures that he made. You have a similar statement in chapter 8, verse 17, where God says to Noah, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth, echoing the original creation account. He says the same to man in Genesis 1:28 when he first creates man. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 9, he says that again, he says something very similar in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same in verse 7. What you have in Genesis 9 verses 1 through 7 is a new charter for humanity. Just as Adam and Eve were given a task and then they were blessed by the Lord to fulfill that task, so you have Noah coming off the ark, being given a task and being blessed by the Lord, being given food, being given an order of society to be the beginning of a new humanity as Noah stands in the place of a new Adam figure. In addition to that, the flood is universal to the same degree that the curse on the ground is universal from Genesis 3. When you read in Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You have a reference here to God saying, I will never again curse the ground or wipe out everything, every living creature, as I have done. God, in other words, settles a plan never to destroy the earth in the same way again. And the parallel with cursing the ground, which is a universal reality, indicates that the wiping out of every living creature was also a universal reality. And then, of course, everyone knows the sign of the covenant that he makes with Noah as a result of this plan is the rainbow. And it is a sign that God makes with all flesh throughout the earth. He doesn't make it with one man or one family or, or one particular gathering of animals in one part of the earth. He makes it with all creation so that whenever we see a rainbow in any part of creation, we have a reminder of God's promise to preserve the order of creation and suspend his wrath over humanity. That's the meaning of the Noahic covenant. God is preserving the order of creation so that his plan of redemption can play out. And that then is tied to Noah's role as a priest for humanity post-flood. I did not read verse 20 of chapter 8, but it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
Noah, post-flood, offers up this sacrifice to God, and it is because the Lord smelled this soothing aroma, this pleasing aroma from the uh, sacrifices of Noah, that he then made a promise to suspend his wrath over humanity and to preserve the order of creation so that his purpose of redemption in fulfillment of his earlier promise in Genesis 3.15 could play out. So you have a universal covenant in Genesis chapter 9 that is parallel to the universality of the flood. So for all of these reasons, all the multiple parallels between creation and flood account, we are being led by the text to conclude that the flood account is every bit as universal in its extent as was the original creation, and that Noah is the head of humanity in its post-flood era, just as Adam was in the pre-flood era. In addition to that, I would simply add that the purpose of the flood in the story of Genesis and in the Bible as a whole is to be a type of universal judgment and salvation. You have the flood referred to originally in Genesis 6, starting in verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, notice the reference there is the wickedness of man, not a particular group of men, but man as a whole. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In those four verses, you have God's judgment of humanity, his evaluation that, that is that humanity is wicked, his intention to destroy humanity, while at the same time preserving Noah who found favor in his eyes. You have, in other words, a declaration of a coming judgment and a coming salvation for the man and his family who will escape that judgment. And then you have, of course, references throughout the flood account to all flesh that seems to cohere with what I just read in Genesis 6, verses 5-8. You can see references to all flesh in 6, 11-13, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 11, verses 15-17. to 17. But even more significant than all this, I believe when you compare what the New Testament says about the flood account, you can see the apostles telling us how we are to understand the significance of this event. And here, Peter says more than anyone else in the New Testament. So uh, I want to uh, read from a few references from both 1st and 2nd Peter. We'll start in 2nd Peter. In 2nd Peter chapter 2, we read in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he goes on. I just wanted to point out that here Peter explicitly refers to eight survivors of the flood of Noah's day. Eight survivors total, no more. In addition to that, he speaks of the world, the ancient world. There he uses the word cosmos, or the world of the ungodly. Again, the Greek word cosmos. If the Hebrew word that can be translated land or earth is somewhat ambiguous in its meaning, I would argue that the Greek word cosmos is not. Cosmos is always used to refer to the world as a whole and is never a local referent. So that's one example from Peter. Another is in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter speaks of it at greater length. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It seems that the scoffers that Peter refers to here are doubting that the Lord will ever return. And they're saying that everything since the beginning of creation continues the same as it always has been. But Peter says they're overlooking the fact that God brought the world into being by the power of his word and he formed it out of water. Remember at the beginning, it was a watery abyss and God formed it into land. And in addition to that, Peter says that the world that then existed was deluged with water. Peter clearly understands the flood account to be something that applies to the same world that was created. And thus, as a type of the judgment of that old world and the emergence of a new creation that tells us that one day God is going to undo this world again by fire so that he can bring about a new and permanent creation. The flood account was a type or a foreshadowing of that final judgment new creation event that is to come. One of the reference from Peter, that would be in 1 Peter now, the letter of 1 Peter chapter 3, in a very puzzling passage, starting in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Many puzzling details of this passage. I do recommend Wayne Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter for the arguments for the view that I hold on this, but I won't go into all the details here. I do want to point out that Peter does clearly draw a parallel between the days of Noah and today. And just as Noah was rescued through the flood by the ark, Noah, and again, Peter mentions eight persons. So again, the referent of salvation is only eight people. There were no others. Noah was rescued through the waters of judgment, and those waters cleansed the earth, and it was the ark that brought him through to salvation. And so Noah inherits a new world as a result of God's saving act that occurs through water and the ark. And so Noah undergoes a kind of baptism as he emerges from the waters alive while his enemies have been wiped out by the judgment of God. And I think the parallel then that, that Peter is drawing is the resurrection of Christ is our ark. And it is what rescues us from the imminent judgment that is coming upon this world. And that happens to us as we appeal to God for a good conscience through faith, which is expressed in baptism. And so all of those parallels again indicate that the purpose of the flood account is to indicate universal judgment on the wicked and salvation of God's elect 
through that judgment. And in, as such, the flood story becomes a type of our salvation, the archetype of Christ in whom we are saved. And I would submit that the universal flood account makes the best sense of reading the text in that way. Gavin goes on to argue uh, in his um, podcast that the immediate context of Genesis 6 through 8 should have an influence on how we understand its reference. And so in Genesis 10, we read about the descendants of Noah, and Gavin argues that the account in Genesis 10 is geographically limited. The nations that are descended from Noah are all located in the Middle East. And here he plays a clip from the late Michael Heiser. And Heiser offers what I would call a rather bizarre take on the whole flood story, because one of Heiser's main points is that the Nephilim, who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, also reappear after the account of the flood. And Heiser argues that the Nephilim are offspring of fall fallen angels and human women, and the fact that they appear both before and after the flood, it sounds like from the quote that Gavin played of him, it sounds like what he's saying is that some of the Nephilim survived the flood. And thus, Heiser seems to be taking the position that there were indeed other survivors besides Noah. Now, Gavin doesn't endorse that position himself, but it seems that the argument from Genesis 10 that Heiser makes there is bound up with that entire presupposition. And thus, if you don't accept that there were other survivors besides Noah and his family, which Peter makes explicit, eight people were saved from the flood. If you don't buy Heiser's bizarre argument, then it doesn't seem that, that the rest of it holds up either from the statement that Genesis 10 gives us nations that are located in the Middle East. I would point out that right after Genesis 10, we have Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. And there's an explicit mention of the scattering of the nations in Genesis 11. And so that argument doesn't seem to carry much weight. So then Gavin makes a second overall argument where he says that a global flood requires us to multiply miracles that are not mentioned in the text. Now, he's not taking an anti-supernatural view here. He's just saying that if we posit miracles that are not mentioned in the text, if we have to posit more and more, that should be a weakness for our position. And so he argues, first, the transportation of all kinds of animals from around the globe to Noah. How did that happen? That would have to be some kind of miracle that's not mentioned in the text. Second, the quantity of animals on the ark, if it was a universal flood, if it was local, then there were only local animals who had to be taken on the ark. But if it's universal, then all the animals of the earth would have to be. How could that many animals fit on the ark? Third, how were those animals cared for? It seems that it's less of a burden to account for how a local gathering of animals versus a universal representation of animals. Fourth, where did all this water come from? How did, in other words, if it's universal, there's simply not enough water to be accounted for. It, it would have had to have been water that God somehow created and then removed. Or that water dramatically reshaped the ge geography of the earth as the flood came. And then fifth, how do plants, trees, and water animals survive the flood as well? And you can listen to his podcast for more expansion on each one of those points. I don't have a specific response to each one of these because I would want to say the bigger picture is what matters here. If the flood is indeed an act of decreation and recreation, as I have argued, and as the text of Genesis points us to, and as Peter in both of his letters points us to, then we cannot squeeze its individual elements into a naturalistic framework any more than we could squeeze the events of the creation week into a naturalistic framework. In other words, if this is an event that is truly at the scope of what the Bible tells us it is, 
then we would expect these issues to arise. We would expect there to be numerous things about it that we simply can't explain, just as we can't explain all the mechanisms involved in the original act of bringing the world into existence and ordering it in Genesis 1 and 2. Each one of these questions that Gavin raises here reflects an issue that is very small by comparison to the miracle of the global flood itself. That's really the bigger picture to keep in mind. So there are different ways we could try to speculate answers to these questions. And I know that various theologians, various ministries uh, have tried to do that. And at the end of the day, I think the answer is we really don't know the specific answers. It's not that there are no answers. It's just that we don't know what the specific answers are to each one of these questions. And I'm content to leave these questions without a firm resolution because I trust that if God could indeed bring the world into existence by the power of his word, and if he could flood the earth by the power of his word, then all of these questions about how he did this or that in the midst of doing such a grand miracle don't really matter as much. And I think that's the direction that the text of scripture pushes us. And I think that we need to come to the text of scripture prepared to submit that to all that it teaches and not be led astray by questions about details that the text simply doesn't intend to tell us about. With all that said, again, I want to say I appreciate Gavin Ortland. I do appreciate the podcast Truth Unites. I uh, will continue to listen to it and continue to profit from it. And uh, I hope that this will be taken as a friendly and charitable interaction with what Gavin argued. So until next time, remember Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Amen.